three-letter word here this morning that's very relevant to our lives, and it's called sin. And I want to talk to you about that for a little while today. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I want you all to notice how plain this is. There's no skirting around what the writer's trying to say. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. That's pretty cool right there. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things are right unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, and he is the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Very powerful scripture setting. I'm continuing my, my lesson theme uh, since we've been in this class, first Sunday of July, the necessity of discernment. And if there's ever a time that we need to be discerning, it's when it comes to the question of sin. The way we look at sin is clearly a reflection of our relationship with God. The way we look at sin is clearly a reflection of our relationship with God. There's a tendency in one's heart to dismiss sin or to look lightly upon it. Then this clearly demonstrates a very low view of God and his high call to holiness. So if one is willing to openly confess or declare that the heart is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah said, and who can know it, then the process of repentance can begin. When sin is viewed as something that is vile and ugly, then conviction can grip our lives and direct us towards true spiritual regeneration by the working of the Holy Ghost. So the area of the text that we are working with focuses in on sin and helps us determine what the right attitude towards sin should be. So most of all, what one must realize with the epistle of 1 John is that John is attempting to promote the saint or the child of God's relationship with God. Furthermore, with this epistle, there comes a very clear proclamation of how the life of a saint is defined. If one walks in darkness then he is walking in the kingdom of Satan. However, in John's time, and we, we brought this up um, in, in our last couple of lessons about the Gnostics. The, there was a group of people that existed in, in John's era of time towards the end of the, the New Testament that were a, a group of people that literally believed in humanistic philosophy. Uh, that runs rampant in our society today. 
they, they held a view that they had a higher revelation of even the, the Bible writers. Uh, Paul referred to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he mentioned that there were high times or high things that exalted themselves above Jesus. The Gnostics believed that material substance was evil and that man was inherently good but was trapped by a bad body or a sinful body. The only hope for salvation was through a form of higher thinking, the Gnostics taught, uh, to allow that there was a, a God on the inside of every human, and it was up to the human to discover who that God was. We hear that in our society today. The overlap in all this is, is actually pretty amazing. So they believed that you could be your own God, that you had a God on the inside of you already, and if you could find him and develop him and so on, then you didn't need any other God. So this is what John was up against, and there's, there's uh, movement in our culture today uh, very similar to that. So in this scripture setting, in John's time, he is working with this attitude and mentality that was in, our, in their culture that's also in ours, and he worked very diligently, uh, and, and, and these people worked very diligently and very deceptively the Gnostics worked very diligently and very deceptively to define what sin was or to redefine what sin was. That's the reason I want to teach, I've been wanting to teach this material. We can't on our own define what sin is and what sin isn't. The Bible does that. Y'all don't understand. We have this mentality that people go to heaven because they're a good person. I used to work for Raven Hearts years ago. Some of y'all didn't know that. Uh, I drove the Hearst, the family car, the Paul Bear's car, and, and every car, whichever car you drove, you were given certain instructions to work during that funeral. And so I've been to hundreds of funerals, obviously. And every funeral I went to, every funeral I went to, every one, it didn't matter who was up here at the front of the church in a casket or whatever, every one of these people went to heaven, every one of them. It was amazing to me. There was no possibility that anybody else that died didn't go to heaven. And I just found it fascinating that no preacher or family had the ability, no matter what kind of a creep was in the casket, that he didn't make it. Nobody could say that. And the reason we do that is because people re have redefined what sin is. So you can live certain ways and do certain things, but as long as you're a good person, it's okay. So we, we, our culture has redefined sin. I'm not going to get more specific than that. I've got a lot of material to teach. And we're doing the same thing in the church. We're good people. We are faithful to church, we pay our tithes, we are nice to our neighbors, we're nice to the people we work with for the most part, we're pretty decent people, so we're okay. After all, we've all obeyed Acts 2.38, 
and we're in good shape. <clears throat> Everything is fine. We have redefined sin. And when you read First, Second, and Third John, when he talks so harsh and plain about sin, this is what he was up against. He lived in a culture of people that completely redefined it. And we've done the same thing in our church culture today. We redefine what sin is. The Gnostics in John's day, and there's people in our day today that believed that if they could redefine what sin really was, then their vain, their vain philosophy would appease their own troubled conscience. Little has changed in our society today. Many are trying to remove sin entirely from their vocabulary and from their thinking. Much emphasis is placed on the idea that man is a victim who really had no choice in the direction of life because of his circumstances. Have y'all ever heard that philosophy? My mama was an idiot, my daddy was an idiot, so therefore I'm an idiot and I can't help it. It's not my fault. So, you know, if I go out and murder two or three people or if I gossip about my family or my friends, I can't help it. It's not my fault. So instead of the sin factor being addressed, much ado is made over psychological calamities which have caused certain behaviors to develop that one just absolutely cannot be responsible for. I'm going to use an illustration here this morning because it happened a long time ago and a long ways away, and I'm not wanting to open all the political ramifications of this, so I'm making another point. On Sunday, October the 7th, 2007, a terrible series of murders occurred in Wisconsin with a sheriff's deputy killing six people. He would later die in a shootout with the police, although his death is undetermined at present as to whether he was shot by the police or the wound was self-inflicted. Now, the fingers are being pointed at the sheriff's department because apparently the deputy had not been psychologically tested prior to his employment. This is a very distressing illustration as to how these events are continually attempted to be explained away. Nobody's at fault. Does everybody understand? Y'all on board with me here this morning? You, you can't point a finger at anybody. And it goes back to that bottom line, a little silly illustration I used a minute ago. You know, if your daddy's an idiot and your mom's an idiot, then you're an idiot. So there's, you're not responsible for it. You can't help it. And that's the culture that we're living in today, and it's crept into the church. And church people, church leadership, and even pastors have a propensity to say, well, they can't help it because their mama was an idiot and their daddy was an idiot, and they can't help it. So we need to give them latitude and let them sin a little because they can't help it. That's not what the Bible teaches. I believe in the grace of God, and you all know that. Everybody here today knows that, if you know me very well. I believe in the grace of God, but the grace of God is not a license to sin. So the illustration I just gave about the sheriff's deputy, this is a very distressing illustration as to how these events are continually explained away. The gripping fact is that men are sinners. 
And this is the sort of behavior that one can expect from a sinner person. I am really enjoying myself today because we have people, several people that's walked in and they had to look for a seat. And I realize we have these two sections because we want everybody kind of in these two, kind of up close and personal. We do have chairs up to the front. We didn't see y'all coming in or nothing. I'm surprised you didn't come all the way up here knowing your attitude. I'm going to show pastor. I'll sit right there. If y'all are guests here this morning, we have a good time at Grace Church. We embarrass you. We do everything we can, but we have a good time at Grace Church. But some of the most provocative writings on sin come from a hearty band of preachers who actually lived a couple of hundred years ago. They were called the Puritans. And none of these men, listen to me carefully, especially all you younger folks in here, none of these men preached the self-help, self-exaltation, self-esteem sermons that are present in much of Christianity today. Some of the titles of their books was the sinfulness of sin, the mischief of sin, the anatomy of secret sins, the evil of evils, the the exceeding sinfulness of sin. This was the title of their books. I wonder if you put them on the bookshelves today, if any of them would make the New York bestsellers list. All of these men preached about the depravity of man and how diabolical that the flesh really is. They used words like vile and ugly and odious and malignant and pernicious and hideous and spiteful and poisonous and villainous and abominable to describe sin. One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, has this to say about concerning sin. He said, sin gratifies the devil. Sin gratifies Satan. When lust or anger burn in the soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. Men's sins feast the devil. Samson was called out to make the lords of the Philistines sport. Likewise, the sinner makes the devil sport. It is meat and drink to the devil to see men sin. How he laughs to see them venturing their souls for the world as if one should venture diamonds for straws or should fish for minnows with golden hooks. Every wicked man should be indicted for a fool at the day of judgment. That's how they wrote a couple hundred years ago. That was the self-help book back then. There are many more very pointed word pictures that Watson used to describe what sin will do to a man. However, men might describe sin, but nothing compares to how Scripture describes sin. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 29, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us and who knows us? I don't want anybody to think here today that pastor thinks we're all sinners and we're all going to hell. I'm not here to preach that or teach that kind of Bible study right now. But we do things and we hide it. And when we come to church, we feel a certain amount of condemnation, certain conviction, whatever, and we don't know what to do about it. That's what I'm trying to help with. 
I'm not trying to hear it here to insinuate that anybody's horrible, rotten here today. You're vile and all of that. I'm not here to insinuate any of that at all. But if you have things tucked away in your heart, you need to get rid of it. Though small it may be. If you told a lie this past week, let me rephrase that, the little white lie. You said something malicious about somebody this past week. It didn't go unnoticed. If you went somewhere to this past week that you shouldn't have gone, it didn't go unnoticed. And it resurfaces somewhere in your life later on down the line and not in a positive way. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, Because that when we when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. These are people who knew God at one point. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things they built to idols. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat and even as they did uh, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were not convenient and being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, who knowing the judgment of God, that they would commit, which commit such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is where we're living today. There's things I read in this scripture setting today that, that our culture is accepting more and more that the Bible is straight. I, I mentioned to you in our Bible study early on, the church has always been opposed to culture because culture has never aligned itself with the word of God, and with the will of God. It never has. No culture ever has. There's always a sinful element working against God in every culture, no matter what it is. Now, we look at China, they're communist, and, you know, Russia is communist, and Europe is socialist and all that. But America, we're free to worship God, but that don't make America right with God. But we think because we're not as bad as someone else, then we're okay. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what I'm trying to teach here. That's why we need the necessity of discernment. That if your life, your attitude, and what have you, is not in alignment with the Word of God, then you need to do some work. <clears throat> so as John chose to confront the Gnostics on their error of understanding sin, he not only gave the description of their action, but he also indicates the outcome of these actions. Ultimately, John determined what would separate the saints from the sinners. John determined that. God inspired him to do it, and he did it. 
he was certain that there was sin in the heart of every man. And the question was, how would sin be dealt with? We all have sinned. Everybody has. The question is, how do you deal with it? What do you do about it? So John was solidifying the way that one would determine how to recognize a child of God or not. The sinner would attempt to cover his sin, just as Adam and Eve did in the very beginning of the world. But the saint would be so smitten by his sin that he would readily confess that sin and repent of it. So whatever path that was chosen to deal with sin would prove much as to the spiritual identity of the person. I want you all to notice that. Whatever path was chosen to deal with sin, however you choose to deal with sin, will ultimately identify you as a person. A sinner person covers their sin. A child of God confesses their sin. The wise man said, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. That's why you don't cover it. If you repent of your sin and you tell God about it, he will forgive you and you'll get mercy. But if you don't, you won't prosper in relationships, in every part of life. All right, so here's the question. Do you cover sin or do you confess sin? That's the question. Do you cover it or do you confess it? So to those who attempt to cover their sin, their walk with God will forever be challenged and will never prosper. So those who attempt to cover their sin, their walk with God will forever be challenged and it will never prosper. Y'all need to understand that. Often to cover sin, the flesh will gather a series of justifications and rationalizations that often appear to redefine the sin. We all do this. This is so relevant here today, whether you think it is or not, it is. We justify and we rationalize, and we ultimately will redefine sin. Here's an example. It's, it's the nature of man to hide it. It's all in our nature to hide it. So someone can say, I'm just enjoying the perks of my job. I've heard people say that. I'm enjoying, I've said it. I enjoy the perks of my job. In reality, one should say, I'm stealing from my employer, whether it's in time, money, supplies, equipment. Have you ever taken ink pens home from work that weren't given to you? Have you ever taken printer paper home from work? You know what that's called? Stealing? But we redefine it and call it a perk of the job. God calls it stealing. Boy, I just rained on somebody's parade. Oh, my goodness. You have a lot of restoration to do. Tomorrow morning, that supply closet of jobs, the boss is going to say, oh, I didn't go to Office Depot this weekend. Where did all this stuff come from? You may say, I'm a chip off the old block. I'm acting just like my father. Or I'm acting just like my mother. In reality, one should say, I have a very difficult time with anger and self-control. 
Y'all see what I'm saying now, how relevant this is? We cover this stuff. We don't want to take responsibility. But the Bible teaches that we should. Amen? Okay. Had three that agreed with that. All right. Have you ever heard this statement? Well, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. They had an extramarital affair. They had an affair. They had an affair. That is so common in our, in our culture. Oh, they just had an affair. Oh, boy, did you hear about so-and-so? They had an affair. They've got an affair going on. You know what the Bible says about that? They're committing adultery. That's what the Bible says about it. But we don't use that terminology. Why? Because we are redefining sin. And when people have an affair, it's, it has become not that really that big of a deal anymore because it's a common. That's what culture says. But the Bible still calls it adultery. All right, let's look at this one. I'm a red-blooded American male, and I mean no harm by looking around at other women. My wife understands. To a lot of men, those sunglasses you can buy that has those little mirror things and you can't see where your eyes are going, all men that are going on a cruise buy about three pair of them. In case they lose one, they've got a backup pair. This is kind of humorous, but in reality, I'm not joking. And we've learned how as men to put your head that way, put your eyes. So your little bride sitting over here thinks that you're looking, you look at him. He's so peaceful and relaxed right now. He's just staring out over the horizon. No, he's not. He's looking over there at that woman. got y'all's attention now don't I so I say I mean no harm when I look at other women but the Bible says I have a problem with lust and an impure heart and I refuse to acknowledge it that's what the Bible says but we redefine it y'all with me y'all on board (laughs) we say How does this sound? I just got hurt so bad in that circumstance years ago. It hurt me so bad. I was so hurt. Y'all ever heard that before? In reality, one should say, I am really enjoying living right now in my bitterness and refusal to forgive those that hurt me. That's the reality. Hello? Is my microphone still? Y'all hear me okay? Is it still on? We got a light back there blinking, and it's very distracting to me right now. How about this one? We're just going to get out of town for the weekend. We just need to get away for the weekend. In reality, one should say I have a problem with commitment to God's house. Because the reason I say that is very few people, it's always the weekend. You're not going to cut your job short. You're not going to cut your employer short. So you'll have God pay the price. You'll have church pay the price. We've put that off on God. 
I'm sorry, y'all didn't come here today to to be confronted with such realities. <clears throat> we here. I really enjoy the fellowship that so and so provides to my life. I really enjoy the fellowship I have with this person. In reality, we could say, I am motivated by the sin of gossip and talebearing that this relationship caters to. That's what I really enjoy about it. But we have a hard time being honest. Folks, you have to understand this is the necessity of discernment. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what culture embraces. It doesn't matter what culture believes. You're not going to be judged according to the standards of culture. So often to say these things in this light has the tendency to make one feel better about the situation. Now, I'm justified. I've rationalized it. Now, I'm justified. However, the crucial matter is to gain insight as to how that God views this stuff. When the matter is seen as, as it really is, it is nothing more than an effort to make a mockery of God and even the Word of God. So one must always allow the Word of God and the voice of the Holy Ghost to help make the necessary changes in our lives. And here lies the necessity of discernment. Folks, notice the screen. There will be a constant battle for the rest of your life once you've been filled with the Holy Ghost. There's going to be a constant battle, constant battle. And you have to discern when things are right, really, truly right between you and God or not. This is not meant to be received with alarm, but rather with an understanding that once conversion takes place, a real spiritual battle starts in earnest. Everything, everything, everything. the devil can do to distract with intent to destroy the saint is what he will do anything and that's where discernment is so important you have to be able you have to be close enough to god you have to be able to discern if you're pleasing to god or not so despite the attack of the world the flesh the devil the word of god is very clear in our reaction to what we are to do with sin. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You don't let it reign. You don't let it take control. That you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. He further urged the saint in Romans 8, For if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 give a great treatise about how to deal with sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul determines that victory over sin can be a reality. Yes, it can. In Romans 7, he indicates that there will be a constant struggle with sin for the carnal saint who chooses to live as close to the world as possible. In Romans 8, Paul then describes the powerful work of the Spirit in the life of the saint. The Holy Ghost is the enabling power of God. It's an enabler. But you have to let it work. 
So consider some of the characteristics of the Holy Ghost that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, 2 and 3, the saint is free from the law of sin and death. In verses 4 through 13, the saint is equipped to live a life of holiness and righteousness. You're equipped to do that when you receive the Holy Ghost. In Romans eight fourteen through 19, the Spirit will assure that the com- that, and, and comfort the saint as he walks through affliction. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 20 through 28, the Spirit will preserve and sustain the saint of God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 39, the Spirit is our hope of final victory in eternity. So the Spirit of God is an enabler to do the right thing. But you have to keep it plugged in. You have to keep a discernment alive and well in your life, the necessity of discernment. So the Holy Ghost has the power to help the saint to entirely uh, mortify or kill the sin that is troubling and perplexing him. So when one refers to this concept of mortification or killing, it means that new habits of godliness will and should replace old habits of sinfulness that once ruled. God isn't going to force you to do this. You're going to have to choose to do it. It's the principle of a disciple. You live a disciplined life. You just don't do everything you want to do when you feel like doing it. And then explain it all away and justify it and rationalize it and all that kind of stuff. So the Holy Ghost gives us great power to overcome the works of the flesh and the accompanying battle with sin. So will you cover sin and justify it? And say it's okay and God will understand. Or will you confess it again? That's the question. So mortification or killing abates sin's force. You can kill sin in your life. But it does not change the nature or the attributes of sin. Grace changes the nature of man. But nothing can change the nature of sin. And that's why you can't justify it. God don't change your sin into something amazing just because you feel cool about it. Nothing changes the nature of sin. Sin is sin. And destroyed it may be in your life. It shall be. But cured it cannot be. You can get rid of sin, but it doesn't go away forever. It's coming back. Because you can't change the nature of it. Sin don't convert So if it's not overcome and destroyed, it will overcome and destroy the soul. And herein lies no small, no small part of its power. Sin is never quiet, whether it is conquering or conquered. It's never quiet. So do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to kill sin, to keep it out of your life? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. You kill sin or one day it will kill you. James said lust is, sin is conceived through lust and sin when it's finished is death. So he that is appointed to kill an enemy, he that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, If one is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking that enemy before the enemy is killed, then he only does half of his job. 
You don't attack sin, you get rid of it. You kill it. But be rest assured, it's coming back. And so you kill it again, and it comes back, and you kill it again. Because sin can't be converted. So every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. It proceeds towards its height by degrees, making good the ground it has got by hardness. There's not the best saint in the world, but if he, could, if he should give over this duty, would fall into as many cursed sins as ever did any of his kind. Sin sets itself against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow to. So let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness while he walks not over the bellies of his lust. God forgives you of sin, and he does every time you ask him. But you do everything in your power to fight it off and not fall into its trap, no matter how trivial or justifiable it may seem. And it's going to be a daily battle, folks. It just is. It just is. So how do we mortify sin? How do we kill it? Sin cannot be treated lightly or dealt with kindly. Sin must be dealt with severely. The playbook for mortifying sin is found in Scripture. And I'm going to give you some things here this morning that's very applicable. The Bible says to abstain from fleshly lust. Dearly beloved, Peter said, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians to flee fornication. When you're tempted, when the door is wide open to commit fornication, adultery, what have you, you be disciplined enough to walk away. You don't do it and then justify it later. Just don't do it to start with. You say, now, Pastor, is that really applicable? You would be surprised at how applicable that is in the church today. These references are very direct in their approach. You abstain from it. You don't do it. You stay away from it. You flee immorality. You walk away when it opens the door to you. To put to death the sin in the heart, one must stop entertaining it. Peter does not suggest a recovery program to help get rid of the addiction. It's not what he's advocating here. Don't help somebody. Don't get somebody to help walk you through it. He says the Bible's cure for that is to quit doing it. Stop it. When the opportunity's there, don't do it. Say, so, well, Pastor, we know in your job you're never confronted with stuff like this. You have no idea. Sister Murphy can vouch for that. And she's more of a thermometer with that kind of stuff than I am. The writer is simply stating that you are to quit doing this sin. Quit thinking about it. Do not indulge your life, your thought life on that matter. And there are some who are expecting a magic bullet to empower them. But the fact of the matter is that Scripture is very practical in stating 
to abstain. Okay. <laughs> Y'all's look is saying something to me right now. Our culture has taught us to do this. But, Pastor, you just don't understand. Okay, the Bible don't do that mess. Put away the box of Kleenex, quit pouting and sulking, and, and beating yourself up and blaming everybody else. The problem is you can't discipline yourself. That's the problem. And the reason I want to point this out today is not only can we discipline ourselves, we have a very difficult time in disciplining our children. And the reason kid discipline is so hard from us is because we can't discipline ourselves. We've never learned how in this dispensation of grace and mercy and whatnot to discipline ourselves. We want our way. Everybody wants their way. I do. If you don't believe it, ask Sister Murphy. I'll admit it openly and publicly. I want my way. I'm hard-headed and stubborn, and I want my way about stuff. Ask Casey. She's more hard-headed and stubborn than I am. Sister Murphy says, hey, you want to go eat at Cafe Phoenicia? No. I hate the place. I do go with her sometimes. Huh? Well, it's better than nothing. Occasionally it's better than nothing. I mean, I am nice sometimes. I forgot the point I was trying to make. (laughs) There comes a time, no matter how hard-headed you are or how weak you are, There comes a time, regardless of what your emotional structure is like, regardless of what your mom and daddy's like, no matter how you were treated as a child. I'm not trying to be not compassionate here this morning. You folks know me. Most of you do. (laughs) We do our very best here at Grace Church to help people. We do. But there comes a time for crying out loud that you have to bow up as a person and say, I'm not going to do that today. After a while, you determine, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to be that today. Now, as much as I just confess that I'm hard-headed and stubborn or whatever, probably wouldn't hurt for some of you to have a similar moment. Anybody want one right now? I'm kidding. But it wouldn't hurt once in a while to just be real honest and transparent with yourself. And if you are, if you have weaknesses in areas, then you need to reestablish the way you think. Reestablish the way you think about stuff. Quit blaming other people for your weakness. When you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost takes precedent over all of that. Hence, the whole point in being born again. It's a new birth. It's like you start all in the eyes of God, you're starting all over. In the eyes of God, your past doesn't even exist anymore in the eyes of God. So when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and, and, and I don't know how to teach this, to be honest, in some profound way. 
But if I need to drive a nail through a piece of wood, I'm not going to try to use my hand. That hurts, man. Anybody feel me? It can be a little old bitty nail. It could be a straight pin. And you're trying to pound that thing in. Man, my time, the kids are running in out here. Time's already gone. And you're, it, it hurts after a while. So common sense tells you to go get a device, a tool called a hammer. Brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? I amaze myself with the knowledge and brilliance that I possess. Go get a hammer when you need to nail a nail into a board. If you have a weakness in your life and you need to come overcome something or get past something, go get the right tool to do it. And if you want to drive a nail in a board, even a rubber hammer don't always work. Don't get the soft one. Don't always go to the support group. I've, I've heard, I've got to quit. I've heard across the board, across the board, that the best way to quit smoking. Say it again. You quit smoking. This gradual business, I, I know people that's tried and tried. Well, I'll, I'll just cut back. Well, something stressful happens in your life, and you've just smoked a pack in five minutes, and, and oh, man, I just messed up. After a while, you get rid of the thing. You, you quit it. Does that make sense to anybody? I'm sorry. I just got into the heart of my lesson, and my time's gone. I'll pick it up next Sunday. But bottom line, folks, we've got to start 11 here. But bottom line, the Bible teaches the best cure, one of the, the, the first step in the sin question is to stop doing it don't have somebody walk you through we'll have a problem with a dog with pornography so i'm gonna get eight people that's had the same problem over at my house and we're just gonna watch it but not as much well that's the approach people take to smoking and drinking and what have you we just wean ourselves off of it. no the bible says stop right i love you people great turnout here today thank you all very much Thank you, and we'll see you back here next Sunday for this.